Well, good morning. Uh, if you weren't here at the beginning, my name's Russ. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer Baptist Church. And uh, I was initially supposed to preach a few weeks ago, but was providentially hindered, like Pastor Sam mentioned earlier. But he has graciously allowed me to interrupt his uh, preaching through Lamentation. So I'm very uh, excited and grateful to him for that opportunity. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 30 this morning. Uh, the title of the sermon is Jesus Defines Success, and the key words are talent, master, servant, and faithful. So uh, I have a question to start with this morning. The question is, why, why are we here? Not why are we here right now, just us, but as mankind, as a people on earth, why are we here and what are we supposed to be doing while we're here? That's the primary philosophical question, right, that's been asked throughout the ages. What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? Now, of course, we know the catechismal answer to that is our chief end or our primary purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And this is, of course, very true, but I'm a very practical person, so I'm always looking for practical ways to apply truths like that. So yes, we are to glorify God, but how do we glorify God? How can we glorify God? What does it look like and feel like in our day-to-day lives to glorify God? For some, maybe a lot of people, this question of what are we supposed to be doing with our life is not an easy one to answer. From a non-Christian viewpoint, the answers can vary widely. Some say that on a fundamentally biological level, we are merely here to pass on our genes to our children. This is why we strive for success in life. This is why we desire marriage and children and what keeps the species going. But my question to them is, why is passing along our genes even important? What does it matter? Others say that equally encoded... In our biological software and in our culture is another purpose, another less selfish drive, the drive for meaning. Temple Grandin, an autistic woman who is one of today's leading scientists and animal behaviorists, said in an interview with the New York Times, quote, The meaning of life is if, someone that, if something that you did made something better. Like, I get an email from a parent, thank you so much. My kid is employed now because I read one of your books. That is a little piece of the meaning of life right there. The fruit of this life, Marcus Aurelius wrote, is good character and acts for the common good. It seems like the greatest achievements in human history are unselfish ones. It's the art that stirs emotions, that gives people joy or insight. It's a scientific breakthrough that makes life easier for everyone. It's the collective sacrifices. It's the tackling of hard problems together. It's also said that what is important in life is the idea that we are here for each other, that we are bees of the same hive, that we are here to make things better for others, for the next generation. That makes life meaningful and worth living because in doing so, we find happiness and respect for ourselves. So meaning on a personal level, I think, can be tied to how successful we see ourselves in life. So then what is success? 
Well, success is usually based on our performance in our various careers or callings, in our educational endeavors. For some of you younger people, it's in your sporting or competitive um, achievements. Success can also be reflected in the sum total of our relationships with each other, with our family, with our friends, with co-workers, with neighbors, etc., everyone we interact with. A popular idea in our society is that success means being the absolute master of your own destiny. But just like anything in life, there's a great danger in divorcing how we look at meaning and success from God and his word. Tim Keller wrote, More than other idols, personal success and achievement leads to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and value rests in our own wisdom, our own strength, and our own performance. To be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means that no one is like you. You are supreme. So if we were to understand the biblical meaning and motivation behind things like work and our personal callings, our relationships, we must recognize how the Bible defines success in these things. So fortunately, as members of God's kingdom, through faith in King Jesus, we know who sets all the standards for life. We know the one who contains within himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We know who left us perfect instructions for living a successful life of meaning. So I'm going to propose this morning that Jesus tells us a story in the New Testament that gives us a very working framework for what success is. We know this story as the parable of the, uh, parable of the talents. So this parable offers a profound biblical insight into the definition of success as well as the purpose of our call to work, whether that work is school, a job, your own business, being a mother, Father, grandfather, grandmother, sibling, friend, co-worker, or co-laborer in Christ's kingdom. Really, everything that you do in your life. This parable gives us purpose for all of life. So the parable we're going to look at this morning, comes, it comes on the heels or right after the Olivet Discourse, which is found in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus discusses events future to his hearers, the disciples. So Jesus and the disciples were in the temple, and one of the disciples commented on the majesty and the glory of the temple that Herod had built. And Jesus' response was like, uh, oh yeah, well see all these things? Not one stone will be left on the other. And this troubled his disciples greatly. And they asked him, well, when is this going to happen? And, and what's going to be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? And so Jesus' response here or in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, like I mentioned, is known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus teaches primarily about future uh, periods of tribulation, including the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD and his second coming at the end of the current age. So he also includes practical knowledge on how his disciples and by extension, all disciples of Christ, us, are to conduct their lives and our lives after their master has departed and left them. Jesus shows that there will be a delay before his return, and he teaches us how Christians should live and work during this time before his second coming, the time we live in now. So let's look at our text. Let's read it, and uh, I'm going to go through 
the verses um, after that. But let's, uh, let's read Matthew 25, chap- Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given." And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this parable is related to the parable right before it, uh, which is the parable of the ten virgins. Both are pointing to a future event, uh, the return of Christ. You could, say, you could say the virgins uh, and the servants represent one and the same people, just from slightly different points of view. And these people are God's covenant people. In summary, uh, the story of the ten virgins teaches us to watch and be ready for our king's arrival. To be prepared. To be vigilant or alert and watchful. To stay awake. The story of the talents, on the other hand, or servants, teaches us to work until Christ's return or to be diligent. So these are the practical practical lessons to be learned from these parables. I believe the main point here is not speculation about the timing of Christ's return. The main issue in these two parables is a call to lifelong faithful vigilance and diligence in whatever pursuits God has given us to do. So let's walk through these verses together. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly, um, just point out some key, key things going on here. And then uh, I'm going to have, I'm going to break with Pastor Sam's three, three lessons. We're going to have six lessons and two uh, points of application, but I'll go quick, I promise. 
All right, so in verse 14, we're introduced to a very rich individual, the master. Someone with a great deal of property and wealth. And he is about, he's going to leave for a long, we see in verse 19 that he's leaving for a long journey. But before he leaves, he entrusts or he hands over, he delivers some of his wealth to three of his servants. Now verse, and verse 15 specifically tells us that he leaves them some talents. Now the word for talent can refer to a measure of weight, but here it specifically means a type of coin. Um, in Jesus' time, this amount would be equal to what it would take an ordinary laborer 20 years to earn. Some estimated around a million dollars in today's economy. So it is clear this is a very, very wealthy man. But this man doesn't want his money to lie idle during his absence while he's gone, but he wants it used to make a profit. He wants it to grow. This was a wise and discerning man, so he left each servant an amount according to his ability. He put thought into how much he would leave with each man according to his skill, his wisdom, his character, and his knowledge. So the amount was appropriate to each one. The result of his discernment was that one man has five talents, one man has two, and one man has one. So verse 16 and 17, notice that at once, immediately, the first and second man invest, wisely invest the money left to them. And in the course of time, they double what they were given, 100% profit. It's a good return. But what was their motivation? Why? Why did they act so quickly and, and invest so wisely? Well, more than likely, their master left them instructions and they were motiv- motivated by the confidence that he had placed in them. But also because they knew that one day he would be returning and would be very interested in how they used his money while he was gone. But verse 18, we see that apparently the third man did not care to be bothered with this task that he was given. He buried his treasure in the ground. Not an uncommon occurrence at this time. People often bury their treasure for fear of theft. But that was not his instruction. That's not what he was told to do. Why did this servant disobey his master? Could he have been protecting it from theft? Did he feel inadequate because he received less than his fellow servants and nervous about losing the one talent that he was given? Well, verse 19 shows us what happens when the master gets home. A reckoning will take place, as some translations say. The ESV says the accounts will be settled. This was the common practice of the time when a master would go away on a long trip, and when he would return, he would be eager to see how his servants had gotten along and what they had been doing with his possession. There was no Facebook or um, uh, Instagram or anything. He really didn't know what was going on with his money, with his possessions. And notice again that the master in our parable had been gone a long time. So verse 20 and through, verses 20 through 23, here the parable becomes very vivid for the men. Can you sense the excitement in the first servant? He says, look, master, you placed five talents in my hands. You trusted me with this large sum of money, and I have gained for you five more talents. You could hear him saying, go ahead, count them. He did this. For his master, 
not for himself. And this is like, like I remember when my kids were, were young and they would be, look, Daddy, look, Daddy, when they did something that they wanted me to see. That's, that's the idea we get from here, from this master. He's like, look, look what I did. The servant's excited. He's enthusiastic about his master's money. And he's thrilled to show him how faithful he had been. The master's response is, well done. This can be translated as wonderful or excellent. His master is happy and proud. He said, you've been faithful over a little. A little? Didn't we say this was a large sum of money? Well, compared with what was in store for his servant, these five talents were pocket change. And compared to the master's great wealth that he has, this is but a small portion. The master calls his servant good and faithful twice and then invites him to share his joy or his happiness with him. Well, the next servant comes forward and beaming with equal joy and excitement as the first. He makes the same speech as the first and receives the same exact praise. Now, even though his portion was less, he was just as faithful and reliable as the first servant. So he was equally deserving of his master's praise. It was the servant's obedience and loyalty that counted, not the amount of money that was left with him. So now, verses 24 and 25, it's the third servant's turn. And I don't, I don't want us to fall for the third servant's lies here. In order to invent an excuse for blatantly disobeying his master, he makes up the fact that his master is a hard man. This means that he's unrelenting, he's harsh, he's merciless or stern. One who takes more than he has the right to take. When he says that his master reaps where he doesn't sow and gathers where he didn't scatter, he is basically lying and calling his master a thief. He's comparing his master to a hard taskmaster, taskmaster, like Pharaoh, who made the Israelites make more brick without giving them any more straw. This master, when giving out talents, remember, he mercifully gave each according to their ability. He knew this servant could not handle two, let alone five talents, so he only had one to give account for. Now, does this sound like a hard man to you? Then in saying here, have what is yours, the meaning is likely, well, here's what you gave me. Be glad I didn't keep some of it for myself. And we see the master's response in verses 26 and 27. And it shows us that the, uh, the master's response to the third servant shows us that he is not satisfied with his excuse and not happy about this groundless accusation. And calling him wicked, the master is pointing out that this servant has deliberately misrepresented both his master and himself. He, fought, he, falsely, he, is falsely, he falsely accused his master of being cruel, and in telling his master here, have what is yours, was really a lie, since he owed his master whatever the first one talent would have earned in interest if he had been faithful. But instead of admitting his guilt and disobedience, he acts like a hero for giving him back his one talent. This shows his selfishness and wickedness. His master points out that if he was so hard... He would have thought the least a servant would do is put the talent in the bank and earn some interest on it. 
But no, the servant is not interested in serving his master or helping others, but is now shown to be fearful, wicked, and lazy. Character combinations that seem to go hand in hand. And finally, verses 28 through 30, here the reckoning or the settling of accounts takes place. The master issues a command. He says that the wicked servant's one talent is giving to the faithful first servant who gained five talents. But why to him? Do the rich get richer in this parable? Well, the answer is in God's economy, yes. Uh, William Hendrickson, he wrote this about, about uh, what's happening here in these verses. He says, The man who through diligent use of the opportunities for service given to him by God has by divine grace surrendered himself to the Lord to love and help others, and who in so doing has enriched himself, shall by continuing in this course become more and more abundantly rich. On the other hand, from the person who has become poor, because he has never given himself, even whatever little he once had shall be taken away. So the wicked servant is cast into the outer darkness. Here he is far away from the joy and the happiness and the celebration that his master and the two other servants are sharing. No light from this celebration can be seen. The weeping signifies a place of utter hopelessness. In this dark place is inconsolable, never-ending misery and sorrow. Finally, we see the accompanying grinding or gnashing of teeth as a sign of excruciating pain and anger. This gnashing of teeth, we know from similar expressions in the Bible, will never come to an end or cease. So what's the point? What's the point of this parable? Jesus is teaching us here that all those in the kingdom of God should be faithful in using their opportunities for service that the Lord has given them. We should desire to serve God out of gratitude and love for God, not what we can get out of it. By doing this, God is glorified, his kingdom is advanced, and others are benefited primarily, but not exclusively, his people. So negligence is punished, diligence is rewarded. So let's look at six lessons that we can take from this parable. First one is, Whatever we have belongs to God. We possess or hold, and God owns. We are stewards of what belongs to God. We are all God's servants, and each one, each one of us, important point, each one of us have certain talents that God has entrusted to our care. To apply this parable correctly, we need to understand that anything by which we can glorify God is a talent. I love J.C. Ryle in this parable. I'm going to quote him a couple times. First, first quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, Our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, all are talents. Whence came these things? What hand bestowed them? Why are we what we are? Why are we not worms that crawl on the earth? 
There's only one answer to these questions. All that we have is a loan from God. We are God's stewards. We are God's debtors. Let this thought sink deeply into our hearts. Also commenting on this parable, Hugh Welchel, he wrote a book called How Then Should We Work? about about work and, and callings. He said, in the most general sense, we can conclude that talents are creational, derived from the creative activity of God who invites us through their use to be co-creators with God, to make God's world work, and to build up the body of Christ. They are tools God gives us to carry out the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and have dominion over the earth. And in this context, we can be assured that whatever the Lord gives us now, He will ask us about later, expecting us to diligently work with those resources for the furtherance of his kingdom. Number two, lesson number two, the Lord grants us opportunities for service in proportion with our ability to use them. So on the day of judgment, the question will not be how many opportunities did we have for service or how great, but how faithful we have been in their use. Third lesson is that Jesus did not expect to return immediately. He knew it would be a long period of time before his return. So remember, even though he has been gone a long time, our master tells us to be vigilant in being ready for his return and to be diligent in service until his return. Vigilant and diligent. Number four, for the faithful, we will share the master's own joy and the joy of all the saved in the afterlife. So those who serve God with their talents will receive an abundant reward in the great day of reckoning. We see that the servants that used their talents are well were used their talents well were commended as good and faithful and told that they could enter into the joy of their master and will be set over much. So these words should be a great comfort to all who desire to serve and please Jesus Christ, the best of Christians, the best of us, is a poor, frail creature and needs the reminder of the gospel of God's unmerited grace and favor every day that he lives. But even the least of us will find that we are counted among Christ's servants and that our labor done for the Lord, because of our love and devotion toward him, will never, ever be in vain. We may find that our master finds more beauty in our simple acts of service to him than we ever saw in them ourselves. Number five, many make a bad use of the privileges and mercies they receive from God. Not only committing sinful deeds is wrong, but omitting good deeds that glorify God. Frank, could this be you? I know it's been me, and this should be a very sobering thought to all of us. The parable tells us of the servant who hid his talent in the ground. To hide our talent is to neglect the opportunities that we have of serving and therefore glorifying God. Basically, it is to be faithless. What has God given you to use for him? Yet you hide it, ignore it, and refuse to serve God with it. I encourage you and all of us to spend time thinking about this, praying about this, talking with other Christians about this, and set about to serve God in whatever way he has gifted you. The sixth and final lesson is that all unconverted people will be condemned and cast away 
on the day of judgment. So there will be no excuse for you at the day of judgment if you have rejected Christ. Anyone's attempt at pleasing God with their works or to earn their salvation by any other means than faithfully trusting Christ as their Savior will prove absolutely useless and vain. The judge of the earth will be found to do what is right. Now, thousands are going to church today doing what seems to be a good thing, going through the, mo- going through the motions, burying their talents deep in the ground, being faithless, and the whole time they know in their own conscience that they are guilty, and so the punishment of their soul is their own fault. But if this is you, then you need to realize right now, because you don't want to wait until it is too late, trust in Christ. Christ, turn from your sin. Place your allegiance in King Jesus. Put your faith in him and then serve him well and he offers eternal joy. Make him your eternal treasure. Again, and last J.C. Ryle, last quote from J.C. Ryle, he, sa- he said this, Let us leave this parable with a solemn determination. By God's grace, never, never to be content with a profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about religion, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of religion, but do something too. We are not told that the unprofitable servant was a murderer or a thief or even a waster of his Lord's money. But he did nothing. And this was his ruin. Let us be aware of a do-nothing Christianity. Such Christianity does not come from the Spirit of God. To do no harm, says Baxter, is the praise of a stone, not of a man. J.C. Ryle. So in summary, I have two fairly quick main points of application. As Christians, we have a mission to accomplish here on earth. This mission is the stewardship, or if you prefer the language of Genesis, dominion or rulership over all that we have been given, over the entire earth. This is our calling as we wait on our master's return. It is a dominion first given to Adam and Eve that we are to exercise over all of creation. And then Christ regave it to us in the Great Commission. This is what we were made to do. This is what we were saved to do. Show, so how do we apply this to real life? So here's the, two, here's the two points of application. One, we are to serve the church and each other. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Ephesians 4 verses 11 12 and 16b, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And number two, make God's world work. So drawing on John Calvin's application of this parable from it we also know that since everything we have is to be used in service to god 
than our natural gifts and abilities that we utilize in our vocations and in our, in our jobs apply here as well. So our talents are to be used for the common good. The use of our talents is not restricted to the church or pious duties. This is called the doctrine of calling or vocation, and it emphasizes the purposeful nature of God's work in the world, basically that God works through us. With this understanding of serving God through our work, work is seen as an activity by which Christians can deepen our faith. I know, sounds crazy. But work is seen as an activity by which we can deepen our faith, leading on to new commitment to God. Diligence and dedication in one's everyday life is a proper response to God's grace. Now, God has given us everything we need to do everything he has asked us to do. Our master, remember the parable, our master expects his servants to do more than just passively preserve what has been given to us. He expects us to generate a return by using our talents toward productive ends. Now, our talents were are given not just for our personal joy and fulfillment, and they are for that, and they can be used for that, but also they are given to us to use for the common good. This is why the Master rewards the two faithful servants with invitations to share in his happiness. Now, Christians will, in some way, will be held accountable for not only how we have loved our neighbor, but for what we have done with our talents. Scripture also teaches that one of the primary ways we glorify God and love our neighbor is through our vocational calling, through our work, through our many varied jobs. So what is Jesus' definition of success? Cornelius Plantiga, writing on this, he says, So on one hand, we don't need to take responsibility for trying to fix everything. The earth is the Lord's, and he will save it. On the other hand, we take responsibility for contributing what we uniquely have to contribute to the kingdom, joining with many others from around the world who are striving to be faithful to add the work of their hands and minds to the eventual triumph of God. So friends, we are in, we're all in this together. Perhaps you have been given five talents. Great. But perhaps it's only two. Maybe it's one doesn't matter. What does matter is that you have been given something. How are you using it? I don't want to leave you here with the thought that we are all called to some extraordinary deed. But the simple question and the way I would sum it all up is, are you being faithful? Are you being faithful to God, to his church, to your family, to your boss, your customers, to your friends? Those who make a profit will be praised with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Those who fail to make any increase will be accountable. It's up to us which response of the master we will receive. Our work, both inside and outside the church, is to be driven by our love of our master and our ultimate desire at the end of our time here on earth, should be to receive his praise and enter into the joy of our master. Amen.